BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Today we're joined by Mary, who tells a story about her teenage years living with her family, which happens to have slightly different rules of the household than what most of us are used to. Her family is Jehovah's Witness. She goes through the typical teenage rebellion years, which most kids do, but in her case, it could be her fate or salvation. She makes a choice, and to most of us, it'll sound like the toughest choice of her life, but it was the best choice for her. So where are you located at? Brisbane. Okay, cool. Um, I have to say that I was rather taken by your, your story that you wrote in with. I happen to have a few friends that are in very, very religious families and have been, I guess, what do you call excommunicated? Um, Yeah. And usually it was just like a family that just kind of kicked them out or shunned them. But I never heard a story from anyone that's really been in a, you know, a whole group or community that way. So you can give um, a synopsis of uh, how, I guess, how you were raised and, and brought into the the church or the religion i don't know how much you know about jehovah's witnesses in general very little very little yeah well if you ask them they would say that they're christian though um most christianity believes in the trinity of the son holy ghost and spirit being one jehovah's witnesses believe that god and jesus are two separate people there's a father in heaven sent his son to earth And there's a big difference between all, because they believe in Jesus, they believe they're Christians. It does bring argument with those kind of religions, like the Mormons are the same, Mm -hmm. and the Seventh-day Adventists have similar beliefs. Okay. Growing up in these religions, it's like God's always first. We believed in God, Jehovah, and... Even more so than, you know how love religions, it's all about Jesus? Yeah. Well, with our religion, it's all about God and all, all praises to him first before even Jesus. Or family. Well, in, in a sense, it's just that we have to give the glory to God before anybody. 
okay. and God's first, his laws first, above country, above law. So they've basically taken the Bible, like all religions do, and spun it uh, their way. I think it's difficult when the Old Testament is the guide to your life. You know, the Bible has stories of Abraham and all of those kinds of things, and they just seem so distant. So those are the kind of things that you live by, those parables in the Bible. And I think a lot of religious um, people will understand this, is that whenever you come across a problem, those stories will, like, pop up into your head and um, you wonder, oh, how will I deal in this situation? And that's how your brain works, and it's really strange. Well, it's it's what you've been taught. It's what you know. It's what you practice every day. So it, it does make sense to me that... You know, I have a challenge in my life, so how am I going to approach this? Well, what would my Bible say? And then you go to whatever story it is. I, I get it. Well, I think it isn't strange until you, because we all learn to use our feelings, our you know, emotions, how do you feel, pray about it, you know, and see how you feel about that. There's kind of no logic involved. It's all about your feelings. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're a teenager who's, you know, confused about life in general. And your feelings, your heart is not generally the best guide. So it can be confusing and you go through a whole lot of emotions of guilt. Your conscience plays a massive part in everything you do. And I just remember being angry. I was angry all the time. I don't remember a part in my childhood when I wasn't. I was angry at God. I felt like he was this anvil around my neck, Mm -hmm. just holding me back from everything that I ever wanted to do. Because they believe that Armageddon will come. So they're Armageddonists. The only people saved will be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Everyone else will be swept away in this cataclysm. Did they have any date on Armageddon or was it just whatever? They used to up into 75, Uh I think from the late 1800s, along with the Seventh-day Adventists, they were that group that used to pick out a date and say, it's coming, it's coming, coming. It never did. And then I think in 1975, they had a mass exodus when it didn't happen. And the whole structure changed. Growing up, it was more we don't know. We don't know when it's going to happen, okay. but it will. It will. It was like this constant thing. And we don't believe we're going to heaven either. We believe we're here for the earth. Revelation is a big part of their um, religion, of course. Okay. They've taken the 144,000 in the Bible of those, um, I think it's 144,000 virgin boys who translate to heaven in some way, I can't really remember. And they believe there's only 144,000 people who are going to heaven, and we call them the anointed ones. But they're kind of like anybody in our religion. I don't know how it works. I don't understand it, how they pick the people who are going to heaven. And they're the only one who's who takes sacrament as well. We don't celebrate birthdays. We don't 
sing the national anthem, we don't go to war. We're basically an island off the coast mm-hmm. of the mainland. Okay. And we only go to the mainland to preach and for supplies. I'd say that's pretty much how it is. I guess the 140,000, 100,000, whatever. Yeah. It, it, it's it, basically if you feel like you're going to heaven, you would tell somebody. I don't know exactly how it works. You get chosen and you then are the only person who takes part in the sacrament at Passover time. Case. And I've only ever seen it once. Uh-huh. Um, one woman who was in our um, joint congregational Passover where she took the sacrament, you know, the bread and the wine and because she was going to heaven. And I don't know how that comes about and how they've decided that from the Bible, this 144,000 is different from our 144,000, but that's basically the belief. I would just assume that there's already been 144,000 that <laughs> have lived so, and yeah. died and all the seats might already be taken, but I maybe that's just my <laughs> ignorance. To, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not trying to make fun. I just, that would just yeah. seem like a logical question is, is there any more seats left? That is a question. And I'm guessing there has to be. I never knew how many were left growing up. I only ever met one. And I can't tell you the doctrinal explanation because I never understood it. It just never made sense to me. And I guess that was the theme growing up. I had a lot of those things where things just didn't make sense to me and I was angry that I was trapped. We were taught that, as I said, the Jehovah's Witnesses were the only ones going to be saved on earth and that the worldly people would all, you know, be cast away. So we were supposed to have associations in the world, friends um, and so on. Even though I did, you know, at school and everything, and I'd sometimes look at them and think, you know, this can't be. They're like good people. These people are good people. How can this be? How can God just want to destroy them? Mm -hmm. And I would think about Abraham and him wanting to bargain with God over the lives of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'd think, you know, would I do that? Would I bargain with God over my friends? (laughs) It's this constant barrage of conscience and confusion I was constantly confused and angry about it well yeah I mean in most other religions if you're just a good person that believes in God you get to go to heaven whereas everybody else is going to hell so at least there you got a 50 50 chance but in this case you're told not to be around other people not to form relationships with them and you're not even guaranteed you're set up for failure, really. Well, I think that's exactly how I felt. I think women in our religion don't really have a place. There's a lot of religions who have women who have status. Jehovah's Witnesses, we just have elders and the women are supporting roles. So I remember, ever since I could remember, I said to my mum and dad, I'm never getting married, I'm not having children. <laughs> I just thought that that's all there was. You know, I'm going to get married, have children, sitting in sewing circles, swap recipes. Even though all that eventually happened, it's just as a child thinking that's your only option, not even education because at the time 
I can't say for now, but at the time it wasn't, no one said no, but because of Armageddon, you're not supposed to put your pursuits into worldly things, um, in secular work. Anything that can take you away from our religion is deemed inappropriate, you know, a worldly pursuit. Yeah. Just remember clearly, like my brother and I had this conversation where we thought that spoke about how we just had no future. Our only future was basically Armageddon coming and us being the cleanup crew, I suppose. God, that's so and... screwed up. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I can't, you know, I, I, I tried to be professional when you were telling it in the beginning, but it just, it, that's, it's screwed up that a child would have to believe that and be brought up. Oh, this, so we used to go to meetings four times a week along with field service. So it takes up a lot of your time because in between those days, you have to study for the next meeting as well as your job and everything else, school that you've got going on. And if that job takes you away from those meetings um, or any of your outside pursuits, then someone's going to kind of mention it and ask, you know, why aren't you coming? What's been happening? You know, maybe that you should, you know, slow down on the work. Then if things start slowing down even more, you may even have a, you know, a walk-in and a mention with the elders. You're persuaded, it's suggested, and then they go to a point where they could try to correct the action. This isn't about making them look bad, about making my family look bad or any of them look bad. No. It's just a lot of people right now are in these kind of religions and are not knowing how to go about leaving, especially as a teenager and you're still under your parents' roof. So I just want to make that clear that this isn't a, a religion bash. <laughs> because despite it all, I think my parents really did try when I was very young, this actually happened, you know, quite a few times growing up. Whenever we'd have family problems, my parents would think that there was a devil's influence in our home. So they would do kind of like a spring cleaning to look for any publications, um, for, to get rid of any records that may have been. So I remember, you know, mid-80s, they got rid of Sgt. Pepper's um, Beatles album. Mm hmm because that was an influence. And Kiss also, that was another one. So they often did this and got rid of the TV, got rid of any um, undue influence whenever things were going wrong. I remember one time I, my dad found a Cosmopolitan magazine in my bedroom and, you know, was telling me how this was an influence from the devil and how we can't have these kinds of things in our home. And, yeah, it's... It's confusing. It's really confusing for a child to see all this stuff and then not be afraid. I think I was constantly afraid and constantly angry because I was afraid. <laughs> but as I said, you know, when you marry in our religion, it's usually quite young. You usually marry the first person you see <laughs> or have a taken to because dating's always um, chaperoned. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not even sure if you get to kiss before you marry, to be honest. Yeah. It's almost How an arranged. Crazy is that? It, it's like an arranged marriage at that point. 
in a sense, you would have to want to do it, but I'm guessing the reason why you actually get married is so you can take that next step. If two people really like each other, you know, usually you can have that physical connection to see, oh, how do we go any further? But with our religion, you'd get to date chaperoned and maybe hold hands. And then if you wanted to go any further, you would have to get married, mm -hmm. I'd guess. Remember thinking that I didn't want that for my life. I didn't. Was What was your biggest points of contention? Was it the arrangement of it all? I mean, how you were dating, how you couldn't go out and get a job or do things on your own? Was it just that confinement, like feeling constricted? I was gifted athletically. That's how I felt growing up. Yeah. I was really good at that kind of stuff. I had teachers tell my parents, oh, you know, you should be putting her here, you should be putting her there. And eventually they allowed me to join gymnastics, which was in um, our Olympic Centre now in Sydney. I did that and I think my parents understood that there was, wasn't going to be maybe a great plan for me and that's another thing we never sat down and said you know oh, what do you want to do with your life oh, you know where are we going to go from here you're going to go to university there was none of that all I want to be was as a child was an Olympian I want to be a gymnast I want to go to the Olympics and you know my parents kind of said oh you know we'll let you go I don't think they thought that it would ever go anywhere and then as soon as it did they yanked me right out because we're not allowed to do anything for our country. Mm. We're not allowed to go to war. We're not allowed to stand in front of a flag and do anything uh, nationalistic. Yeah. So I devastated when I couldn't, I felt like my only talent was in athletics of some sort. And Olympics is a big part here in Australia. Yeah. So when I couldn't do that anymore, I felt like I had nothing else. And from that point, it was just angry. I didn't want anything to do with them. Started what? skipping school a lot and just pissing them off, I guess. <laughs> well, what age did you start doing that? Um, leaving school and being naughty. Yeah. Um, I'd guess it started around age 15. So you're rebelling and yeah, I I'm did sure it. they're noticing. <laughs> I'm rebelling, they're noticing. I had another hitch where I had... Um, the high school that I went to had other witnesses. So there was a point where things got so bad that my parents were starting to know everything that I was doing at school. So at first it was little things like I wanted to do a play in drama. The play itself was about vampires. So I had the script and everything. I told my dad about it and he came down to the school next day and said she's not allowed to do it. We don't deal in this kind of stuff. This is kind of a paganism. I don't want her to do it to my drama teacher. And he said, okay, fair enough. And then that day he said to me, look, if you don't do it, you're not going to get scored for this, but it's up to you. So I did it. But what I didn't know was that we were going to have people watching from other classes. And some of those people were people from my congregation and what do you know, someone had told their parents and they rang my parents. That's how it always was. And I felt so trapped 
that everything I did was known the second I got home. What the hell is the big deal? Well, it's not like you were smoking pot in the no. in the girls' room and you got, you know, narked out by somebody. You're you're trying to partake in school functions. I really want to do it. And I didn't think anyone would know. And that, I felt, was the story of my life. I thought I could always get away with just being normal and someone would say, no, you know. Because we're supposed to pull each other up. We're supposed to tell each other, you know, and watch out for each other. I felt trapped at that point, especially when my parents had allowed me to go on a overnight stay with one of my friends from school. What I didn't tell them was that it was a birthday and we're not supposed to celebrate birthdays. But someone, it got out um, the, the following week and that same girl found out and my parents got a call. And that was a big enough infraction to actually bring me up against the elders. Hadn't done anything up until that point which would get me into major trouble mostly things that were just for my parents to deal with. But because I actually went to a birthday and this was a big um, paganism, it was a big no-no, they felt it was um, their right to pull me in. And I can tell you that from that point on, I was so horrified that I had to be in this room with my parents and these three men that I was just, I never wanted to go back. I never want to go back. And I think that's basically when it started. The downhill, real downhill slope where the real struggle where I said, I can't believe this. I felt like I was being watched everywhere. And I'll have to say that this is not normal practice. You know, I think she was going rogue and she had something against me because there were other witnesses there and they didn't care. They just, you know, went on their merry way. Mm. Why she chose to do this, I don't know. But it does happen. You'll get someone who's extremely righteous, who throws Bible passages in your face every time you see them and um, reminds you, you're going to the devil. Who was this that was going after you? Well, it was one of the girls who was my age from my own congregation who went to my same high school. Okay. So I don't know what she had against me at this point, but she really did. She had something against me, and I don't think she realised the havoc that she caused by bringing in the elders and causing our family so much trouble because we all end up splitting up not long after I left home. Her actions led to this, but what I didn't ever understand is why didn't anybody ask her, hang on, you know, why are you always bringing us this stuff? No one ever asked, I don't think. And if you've got a kid who's tattletailing or, or dobbing on you, on somebody all the time, you'd have to wonder why. Well, it sounds like a typical teenage sort of jealousy rival rivalry kind of thing. Yeah, but then she I think so, but it the, would had yeah. much bigger consequences yeah. than just, you know. It's not a tattletale on you for... You know, when you get detention in high school or you get reprimanded by your parents, this is the church is coming down on you. The elders are going to discipline you. Exactly. And it's terrifying. I can tell you that they don't bring you in for nothing. 
it's the only time you ever with them is when you're maybe going into baptismal or doing something wrong. Yeah. So it's a very big thing. It's something you never want to have to do. And it's highly embarrassing to have to sit in front of these people and explain yourself. And, and how is a teenager supposed to defend themselves against people that are such staunch religious elders that know the their Bible backwards and forwards and know what's mm. right and wrong and you're there barely a grasp on life <laughs> and you're supposed to defend yourself to these people? I had no idea. I sat there the whole time while they quoted scripture and they're very good people who believe in what they're doing. But just the whole impact of that very quiet talk and all the scriptures and how you, um, you're presenting yourself, it's this... Intimidation or...? It's intimidation in the, um, how can you say, in the best way possible because they're not yelling at you. They're just telling you in a way that you'd be so guilty about your actions mm -hmm. by telling you that, you know, God's not going to be pleased with this and why and show you the scripture why. And by the end of it, you're feeling like you've just, you're going to hell pretty much, even though they don't believe in it. That's how you feel. You mm -hmm. feel like, God, you're going to be destroyed. There's a very passive aggressive note to everything you read. Like, um, I think something I read recently was about letting yourself be clay in God's hand and letting him mould you. And the whole thing just felt so passive-aggressive because if you don't let God mould you, you know, become hard to him and it's all about you. You are the reason this is not working. If you're not following the rules, it's your fault. So there's a lot of pressure on you to do right. So when something goes wrong, you know that you're going to be blamed for it and everybody else is going to be talking. The biggest lesson I had to learn was honesty on my part. Um, I think I spent a lot of time trying to be somebody else. I think I was at school and I'd try to be somebody for my friends and then I'd be at home, I'd be another person for my parents and then I'd go to church. Oh, we don't call it a church, but then I'd go to a meeting and then I'd feel like I'd be another person. And I thought this was absolutely normal because when my parents would come to um, a meeting, sometimes they'd just been fighting and they'd come in and sort of smiles like this whole different situation is going on and now we're all a happy big family. And I used to sit around, sit in the congregation and think, I wonder who else you know, what's their family really like? You know, what's their family really like? I thought it was, that's what people did. I thought it was normal for you to adapt to every situation, just be a different person everywhere you went. So I had to really learn how to um, be myself and be happy with that person. It took a really, really long time. It, was it this, at this point, did you decide that you no longer wanted to be there, no longer wanted to follow this? Yeah, it was at that point where I just felt so humiliated that I had been brought in front of the elders for this 
I think the only thing I really did wrong in my eyes was not tell my parents about the birthday party because then they wouldn't have let me go. Most children, though, can go to a birthday party. I mean, if you're hanging out with friends, you're hanging out with friends. And whether or not it's a birthday party should not be that big of a factor. But I tried to make the argument, you know, that I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know it was going to be a birthday. It yeah. just happened. It didn't work out. But um, <laughs> in order to do things with friends that I like, because I think that was the big problem, I didn't have anybody of my age in my congregation that I was close to. And my that's the reason why I was allowed some worldly friends was because there was nobody in my congregation that I have a connection to. W- were they supposed to allow me to have nobody? It's not feasible. Breaking their trust on this and me feeling like I had to do it in order just to be normal was a major turning point. I just didn't want to go anymore and it was that whole you know you're living under my roof this is the rules this is the way it goes and from that point on I just don't think I listened to anything they said anymore I felt like they'd already taken away my my sport my future even a birthday party they're taking away my friends and for somebody who doesn't have a future so to speak there's no higher education there's nowhere to go it was major for, you know, a 15-year-old. I felt like I had nothing. You were trapped. And not only that, my father worked for the Department of Education. So he knew some of the teachers I went to school with and anything that went wrong, he'd get a phone call. So I was trapped on all sides. There was nothing I couldn't do wrong in school that he didn't know. There was nothing I couldn't do wrong within the church that he didn't know. And I was... I was constantly running, just getting away. I just couldn't handle it. So did you approach your parents and explain that you no longer wanted to be in the church? Well, I'll have to be honest. We never really had conversations. You know, it's part of um, these kind of religions to always be, you know, open with your children, ask them what they need. So you're always kind of on the same page. And I think part of the problem was with my own family. We didn't open up to communication. Communication, I suppose, is important in every family. I can't tell you what my parents were going through. They had their own problems. I felt like we were never a cohesive unit. We were always, I think we were always, I always felt like they were my enemy. And I think my mum always felt like I was her enemy too. So I never felt well enough to say, look, I can't do this. I could never express my feelings to them because I knew it would always blow up in my face. What it was is, no, I'm not doing this. Um, There was no conversation. It was just when we were doing doing our study for the next meeting, it would come up and I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going back. I'd lock myself in my room. My mum would then proceed to tell me that I would be doing whatever she tells me to do. And it was that kind of thing. There was no great conversation. So when did it, I guess, come to a head? When when did they figure out that you're not going to do this? Like, what was the next step in this relationship here? During the holidays, my father thought it might be a good idea to send me away for a while. So I went to stay with my auntie, who is not... Um, Jehovah's Witness. With Jehovah's Witnesses, we're not allowed to 
smoke. We can drink alcohol. We don't have any dietary requirements. Everything's in moderation. And my parents didn't smoke, but everybody on my father's side of the family did. They smoke and they'll drink alcohol. Even all of my friends' parents smoked. I think um, the only people I knew that didn't were the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think we're talking about the 80s and 90s when a lot of people did. It was a really big deal. So in my mind, I always thought that these things were worldly pursuits, that these were things that, that worldly people did. So when I went to stay with my auntie and she would smoke in the house, I just thought, you know, this is normal. She's a worldly person. And um, my cousin lived with her too. And I think being able to be away from my family and she put no pressure on me. She let me do whatever I wanted basically, as long as I was home at a certain time. And that made me realise that um, over the course of, I think it might have been a month, I didn't want to go back to the way my family was and going to our religion. Mm -hmm. So when I came back home, eventually I told my parents that I can't tell you what the fight was about. We had a major fight that police were called to. And I will have to say that my mum especially was quite violent with us. It was just the way it was. And I think this was the first time I really fought back for myself. She called the police <laughs> and I was kicked out that day. I didn't want to follow the rules. I didn't want to go to uh, meetings anymore. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it sounds so terrible I think my mum thought I was just a – I didn't appreciate anything and I didn't feel like I had anything to appreciate. They weren't bad people. They'd pretty much given us everything, but I felt like they used to give with one hand and take with the other. There was nothing, anything solid because they were always worried about the choices they were making for us. And then as soon as something got too worldly, they'd pull back. And I just wanted, God, I just wanted to go. And so they kicked you my out. My mother threw me out, yeah. What age were you when they threw you out? I was 16 at this point. Oh, going on to 16, I think. Okay. So yeah, I wasn't quite there yet. Very young. Like, very young. I wasn't, I just didn't know anything. You think you know things at that age. You just don't know. I had too much pressure to really think properly. I had um, not enough experience to think logically. And we often are told to believe in ourselves and believe in our hearts. And my feelings were just telling me to go. And the sad thing was is that I could never really truly express these to my parents because it would always turn into a fight. It would always turn into an argument because rules were rules. You know, it's not simple. Uh, it wasn't a simple enough reason to bend them for me because this is your your life, your soul at stake. And yeah. I think they were always worried about that, about um, allowing me to go my way while living under their roof because it would make them look really bad towards the elders in the congregation. When they go to a meeting and someone says, oh, you know, where's, where's the eldest daughter? And 
it's much easier for them to say, oh, you know, she's gone so-and-so, than to say, oh, she's not coming to meetings anymore. I think there's a bit of shame on their part as parents that they didn't do their job and keep us in. So it's easier um, for them to throw you out so they don't look so bad. When they throw you out, do they cut off all communication with you? They're supposed to. I wasn't excommunicated or disfellowshipped from the church. I was a young associate at this time. I hadn't been baptised yet. But I do know that someone from um, my school who was Jehovah's Witness said that my name had been thrown out at a congregation saying that I was no longer one, a young associate. Once you leave, there's an announcement. This person's been disfellowshipped. This person's been disassociated. Then you know you're not supposed to have contact with that person anymore. I did have contact with some of these people, but what it is is just nothing beyond the hi, hello, and that's it. They're not allowed to have any more than that. They're allowed to be nice to you, but they're not allowed to inquire. So, yeah, that night my father drove me to the train station with my two little brothers in tow. He gave me $20 and said, good luck. And that was it. I um, got onto a train and I can't tell you the freedom that I felt like, okay, Every decision made now was going to be mine. If I ever got in trouble with the Lord, it was my choice. I had no clue where I was going. I just ended up going to somebody's house and it was nighttime. I think it might have been about eight or nine o'clock by the time I got to my destination and I just walked from the train station to my friend's house and sat on his front step and fell asleep because being 15 or 16, of course, all my friends are around the same age, maybe a little bit older as well, mm-hmm. and their parents weren't going to take in a strange person, you know. You're still at this stage where, you know, you don't want your parents to really know who the um, the girls you're talking to or the boys you're talking to. And and um, so when I went and slept on his uh, front step, and his mum found me in the morning. He wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> I just had nowhere to go. Yeah. I didn't know anywhere. I... So his mother was very nice and, you know, provided me with some clothes. And he sent me on my way with um, he'll find me somewhere to stay. It ended up being with one of his friends from school who was a local gang leader of an Asian crime mm-hmm. gang, you know, he trusted him enough and I felt like I didn't really have a choice. So I ended up staying at this house and I remember the first thing I walked into was this small apartment with guns down the side and marijuana in massive big washing baskets and I just thought, oh, I've walked straight from this to this you know it was just crazy that's a big culture shock for you it was massive shock because I think the biggest problem was that I kind of expected it because that's what the world is the world's wicked and I just thought that to be part of the world that that's what 
had to happen, that this was going to be my choice. And when I saw the guns and I saw the marijuana, I just thought, well, I made my choice, right? This is it. This is the world. This is what you've got to do. I would say I was, you know, a little bit scared. It wasn't anything that I was used to. I had, you know, a few uncles that had guns. But apart from that, I wasn't crime syndicate ready. You know, I had (laughs) no idea about any of this stuff. I don't think many people are, really. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they gave me a piece on the floor to sit on while they were doing their um, smoking. And uh, I just looked around and kept to myself and sat in a corner and slept there all night unmolested. No one touched me. Everything was fine until the next morning they were raided and I uh, had to jump outside of a, out of the balcony and run for my life, <laughs> literally, because the police were after us. We were running and running and ended up in the city somewhere and I had to have another place to stay. So they organised somebody else to look after me. And we just hung out in the city and I went home with these guys and he lived on a second floor apartment on top of a shop. So second story, when we got there, I obviously had no belongings. I just had myself. He told me to go take a shower, you know, get myself organised. And I only had my clothes, so I had a towel, had my shower and... The shower's a share shower with all the other apartments. So as I was coming back to his door, I just felt like something was a little bit wrong, but I didn't know what. So I just opened his door and everyone was gone except this guy. And he was in his underwear pushing two mattresses together and he had a knife. And I thought, what? As I closed the door behind me, I noticed the knife and I remember the first thing I said was no I went to turn around and open the door and he threw the knife right at the door and I ran to the window and I got onto the ledge of the window and it was at this point that I think he may have regretted his actions I'm not quite sure but he started saying oh please don't jump (laughs) like it's so absurd this guy was about to rape me five seconds ago and now he's worried I'm going to jump out his window yeah. But So I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. He's begging me not to jump out the window. He's gotten the knife outside of the door and he's saying, I won't touch you. He put the knife down. I think what the problem was was that he wasn't fearful for me, but I think he was fearful for himself. I think he thought that he could intimidate me, get what he wanted from me, and then... I'd be too scared to tell anybody. I don't think he was actually going to kill me or do anything absolutely terrible where I'd lose my life. But I think he was trying to intimidate me into, you know, me sleeping with him. And then I'd be too scared to tell anybody. And when he realised that, you know, there might be a big chance that something might happen to me and somebody might, might know he was going to get into a lot of trouble because he was charged for looking after me. I think when this dawned on him, he started pleading with me, oh, please don't, please don't jump. I promise I won't touch you. And I jumped. I jumped out of a two-story window. I closed my eyes and I don't know how it happened, but I landed on my feet and ran. Ended up (laughs) 
under a um, a statue at the town hall. I slept under there. And I think the last thing I heard was that somebody had beaten him up for that. And I just, rules are rules, right? Everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if it's religion or crime syndicates or whatever. It's He was set to take care of you and he didn't. So it's weird. Yeah. I guess from this point I was uh, sleeping anywhere I could and I managed to get a friend, had a car that wasn't working and I was sleeping in his car, just walking the streets. I had nothing to do. I had no idea what I was doing, where I was going, how to get a job, you know, even how to get food, how to get money. I had no idea. I had people coming and giving me $5 here and there mm. just so I could buy something to eat. I was washing up in McDonald's, you know, having a sponge bath there and yeah. using the bathroom there. And I will have to say that despite it all, I was I really felt like I had joined the world, that this was my choice, that no matter what, I could face God and say that I did it, you know. Nobody chose this for me. And I think that was really important to me and still is to this day that I feel like if there is a God, then I want him to know I did this, that I wasn't a sheep who followed somebody else into this. So I've got no one ever in my life now with all the actions I've done to blame but myself. And that's exactly how I wanted it. Wow. So despite everything, I was really happy. I was really happy because I just didn't have the pressure. While I'm looking, trying to find food, I'm not knowing what to do with my life, I felt like there was no pressure anymore. It didn't really matter. And it's such a strange point to be in where you've got nowhere to live and then happy that you're just free. I would assume most people would think you had a lot of pressure on you because now you're homeless on the streets. So there's pressure to find food. There's pressure to get money. There's pressure to survive. Yet you felt this freedom. I was in the world and I could go anywhere. I could do anything. There was nobody at my back. And I, f I felt like I could leave God behind me, even though it it, was, it wasn't really like that. But I thought that if I was the devil's child, then I've well and truly joined the race. And I think um, this whole point of good and evil, it's really confusing when everything's black and white. You know, you know that those black and white lines often bleed into grey and it's never the same in practicality than it is when you're reading it. And I often felt that what I was reading in the Bible and what I was doing in life was just wasn't connecting. And that contradiction was a theme throughout my life that I didn't have to worry about all of that anymore. So, yeah, I was, despite it all and despite all the things that's happened, all the things that I've put myself through, really bad situations, I've woken up not knowing where the hell I was thinking how in the hell did I get here and not remembering anything and not knowing what was going on. But I just got up and moved on. And it sounds like you did succeed. It sounds like you did find your way. And I'm, I'm assuming you turned out just fine. You have 
children. You you live somewhere. You you sound like you're a normal person. <laughs> eventually, eventually it all turned out. It it was a hard go because we had CES back then, which is a social worker. They they're kind of a a joint venture with the social security, except the difference is, is they, they work with youth and help you get work, help you get money, help you find a home or a place to stay. And we don't have that service anymore, but, oh, God, it was like godsend just to know that there was somebody or some place that I could get help and then eventually get work and then support myself. Because I just had no idea of any of this. My parents were both worked, both supported themselves, so I had no idea of governmental income or, or you know, um, help by the government to get you some kind of place to live, refuges and things like that. So, yeah, I did that for a while. I think I had three jobs, boyfriend for a little while as well, and I've managed to have three kids and... You know, we're settled here now, so it's all turned out. And th- Still talk to your parents? Do you have any communication with them now? Well, I didn't for six years. I think I was 21, and I had my first daughter, who's 17 now. And then I think my father, my father always found me. How he did it, I never know. But every so often, you know, every year or so, I'd hear from him and my brother's. At this point, my parents also had divorced. After I left, my parents never found a way to come together and accept it. My parents blamed each other and blamed their religion and they ended up um, divorcing. And my mother's still still a Jehovah's Witness. A divorce is only allowed if, if someone leaves. So they were able to get divorced because my father decided to leave and he was disfellowshipped, and I think he may even be a, a do not call. So that's somebody you meet in field service who is a supposed apostate. I, I just know? never get that whole cut you off and just no more contact. It just seems so unhealthy. They're children. They're fearful of what the reprisals will be to their soul, from their peers and from their um, governing body, whoever's in charge. I think they really do. They really are fearful of what everyone thinks of them because gossip in these religions is massive. Everybody knows what everyone's doing, what, you know, children are going wrong and you don't want to be that person who's everyone's talking about. The religion, it's fear. I I have this weird stereotype of Australia where everyone's happy and doing their their thing and there's no crime or whatever there and and I realize that it's just not even remotely accurate but it, it just seemed I was like how did you get into so much trouble after you left like I didn't think it would be that prevalent I had a friend in 2004 who who was kidnapped and killed and I remember looking at her casket and thinking this was a girl who was just about to finish university. She did everything right. And here she is. You know, somebody killed her. And I was thinking, this could have happened to me. When it all comes down to it, comes down to the end, all you can do is the best, the best for your kids, the best from, for 
yourself because in the end it doesn't matter i i just i'm just curious but are you religious today i would say that i believe in the possibility mm-hmm. and this is another thing too about 10 years ago my middle child who was nine months at the time had cancer and part of cancer treatment is blood transfusions and being a Jehovah's Witness you're not allowed to take blood transfusions. I remember thinking while she's going through treatment that if I was if this happened and I had married somebody within our church or within our congregation and we had a child of cancer I wouldn't be able to do this. I would not be able to give her any treatment. I'd have to let her go. And I just couldn't imagine it. This whole concept of... Disbelief in treatment, disbelief in thinking it's a sin to help, that's that's hard. I just couldn't understand these parents who, like, of course they don't want to let their child die, but they felt they had to for God's sake, that this is what he wanted because that's what our doctrine teaches. I was just very thankful that if this was going to happen to me, to my child, I didn't have to make that decision that despite modern medicine, it might not have worked out. She might have died, and it was a very big possibility with her because we caught the cancer quite late. So while I believe in possibilities, I understand that, you know, belief is just that. It's not necessarily real. You can believe in anything you want. It doesn't mean that it's the truth. And I think what all these religions tend to have is something that makes them stand out, that makes them have the truth. Like Jehovah's Witness, we have Bible that's the most historically correct in its truth. Mm -hmm. And I think the Mormons have their Book of Mormon and theirs is the truth. And the Seventh-day Adventists have their own prophet and their turn of the – their religion and theirs is the truth they all believe that they are the ones that have god's ear i somehow lucked out and grew up in a family that had zero religion my grandfather apparently wasn't religious either and my great-grandfather wasn't religious and it's not really a rejection of religion we just had a no religion Yeah, and I think that's where we are in raising my children. What's happening here at the moment is that a lot of people are moving away from religion. They're not going to church as much anymore. We don't go to, we don't have a religion, we don't go to church. And, you know, I've tried to teach my girls to use their brain logically, to think it out, and not necessarily go with everything you feel. And I think that was a big problem with me. I didn't understand that, you know, that logical thinking. You can never be punished for that by God or otherwise. You can never, ever be punished for doing your best. And I think that's all it comes down to, whether you believe or not. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.